Welcome to the Relaxed Running Podcast, the show that helps runners and athletes in running-based sports transform the way they run. Here's your host, Tyson Popplestone. Ladies and gents, welcome to the Relaxed Running Podcast. Tyson Popplestone here. So good to have you here for another week. Now, today I wanted to do something slightly different because over the last couple of weeks, uh, to my wife's absolute dismay, every five minutes that I have a spare opportunity, I've been jumping on board and checking out, I think there's five separate seasons of the Team Inga Brigston uh, documentary, which was filmed from, I'm not sure, I want to say like 2013 to, I'm not sure what the final season is. But just to catch you up, in case you're relatively new to running or you don't necessarily follow the running world at an elite Level The Ingebrigtsens are a Norwegian family which have developed an incredible reputation for just producing unbelievable quality athletes. Now, there's three brothers particularly. Most well-known at the moment is Jakob, who is an Olympic champion over 1,500 metres from the Tokyo Olympics. He's just run some incredible times recently. He's got a, a reputation for winning huge races. He was a junior uh, world record holder. He's pushing close to the 1,500-mile world records in the senior level now. He's already got the two-mile record, and he's just running incredible times over pretty much everything from 1,500 metres to 5,000 metres. He's a a, a once-in-a-generation kind of talent. His older brothers uh, as well, Henrik, I'm pretty sure he's a 331 or 330 1,500-metre runner, and his brother, Philip, is a European champ from, I want to say, 2017, 2018, 350 miler, 330, 1500 meter runner. Just unbelievable. They're only three of a family of seven. And the, the documentary is great because it picks up when Jakob is about 11 or 12 years old and he's already breaking junior records at that time. And then Henrik is, I'm not actually sure of the age difference, but he looks significantly older at the time. I want to say he's maybe six six or seven years older would be my guess. And essentially, it follows the family dynamic through their training, through their racing, with a really um, insightful, in-depth overview of what it is they're, they're working their way through. The documentary does a great job of um, capturing the family dynamic. So their father, Gert, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that, is is the coach. And it looks at, he, he's quite addicted um, he's a little bit of a dictator uh, with the way that he goes about setting the the training. He's very black and white. It's his way or the highway. Um, but he's also got this this unique caring side, which sort of just comes through to the surface as the episodes go by. A really, really great documentary. It's free on YouTube if you want to check it out. I'll link it in the um, show notes to this episode below. Um, yeah, it's it's one that I highly recommend for any athletes who are trying to figure out their world of running or look for ways to improve as a person who's passionate about elite performance what i loved about this documentary is it it really does look at every element of what an elite performer's lifestyle actually looks at not just the training but also uh, the mindset the frustrations the family dynamics the family support and and today what i wanted to do was i wanted to dedicate this podcast episode towards a, a few observations on elite performance that I've garnered from this documentary on the Ingebrigtsens. I mean, there's there's endless amounts of lessons you can take away from a family like this, but uh, I've tried to boil down the, the main things that I've taken out of it so I can give it to you in a bit more of a bite-sized fashion. And that's what this is going to be today, an attempt 
to do just that. Uh, and honestly, the the documentary has made me it's made me respect all the boys more. Not that I didn't respect them originally, but just to see the talent that um, that the father had nurtured and his approach to doing so in such an untraditional. Um, the way he went about training, we'll cover this in a minute. The way he went about training with the boys was very different to what you'd seen Norwegians or a lot of athletes, for that matter, do anytime up until these guys came along. And so with all of that said, let me jump into an, a number of the things that really stood out to me. Now, I've touched on this. The first thing I wanted to talk about was just the power of a sibling rivalry. This is something that I'm fascinated with in all sports because I often notice that there seems to be a driving factor in young siblings that makes them want to be as good as their older siblings. Now, I, I mean, I noticed this with older friends. I was an only child up until the age of 15. Um, but as a young guy hanging out with friends who were older than me, that's uh, that, that competitive nature of our competition definitely bubbled to the surface or boiled to the surface. And one thing you notice about this is as I mentioned, you've got Hendrik, who's the oldest of the three competitive brothers. You've got Philip, and then you have Jakob. Now, you see the whole way through, it's pretty much their performance operates in that order. Hendrik was the fastest, Philip was the second faster, Jakob was the third fastest. And you just see this desire in the younger brothers to be as good as their world-class older brother, Henrik, even early on in the documentary, Jakob says that his major goal in life is to be faster than what Hendrik is. And just to see not only what that does mentally, but also that what that does on a training sense was really eye-opening to me. I think it's something you'd have to be careful about, and Gert seems to manage this quite well in training sessions, that you're not absolutely smashing a session out of the park in an attempt to keep up with the person that you're competitive against. But there's definitely some empowering factor that comes with the desire to be better than, uh, you know, for the sake of this particular documentary, your older sibling. So uh, Jakob is constantly exposed to what elite performance looks like. He, he knows that, first of all, he's training with world-class athletes when he's 11 or 12 years old. He's getting a glimpse into what it looks like to train, what it looks like to recover, what it looks like to race, what it looks like to actually believe that you're competitive with the best athletes in the world. And I think for whether this was planned, and it wouldn't surprise me, uh, when you learn a little bit more about the uh, parents of the Inger Brigson boys, uh, whether this was a, a planned structure that they'd put together, or whether this was accidental, there's no doubt that if you play this right, there's some huge advantage to exposing yourself to the training of athletes who are better than you. Obviously, it doesn't necessarily have to be uh, an older sibling. But if you can get involved in a group of people who uh, ideally you're relatively close with, who are a little bit better than you and who are uh, driving to be elite level performance uh, performers, there's something within that that opens your eyes to what it requires to perform at that level. This was a standout feature of the documentary and I was constantly amazed, mind blown, uh, a little bit jealous of, uh, jealous in some respects, jealous of the, the training partners that Jakob had maybe not so much the family dynamics that were external um, to the the training dynamics, but just the exposure he had to being around these world class performers was something that was obviously a, a huge breakthrough. At the age of eleven or twelve, not only was he saying he wants to be you know the the best in the family, but he's starting to say no, I want to be better than him, which means I pretty much have to be the best in the world. <laughs> which when you rock up to training each and every day with not only that 
that mindset, that desire, but the belief that it's actually a realistic possibility, I, I reckon that does something to your psyche, which allows you to hit levels of performance that uh, a lot of other athletes wouldn't actually get the opportunity to, to venture into. The, the other thing, uh, or the second thing that was really interesting that we don't often see, and I think this is this is a double-edged sword. Uh, it's the, the single-minded focus from a young age. Uh, Jakob was 10 or 11 when he started training seriously. Now, you hear this and you think of athletes like Tiger Woods, who his dad got him doing the same thing in golf at actually a far younger age because obviously golf's more of a technical sport than running and it's not as strenuous on the body. But I think a lot of us naturally assume, and I caught myself doing this throughout the documentary, that if you want to be the best or if you want your kid to be the best, you've got to start them at a really, really young age. I cannot remember the the book that I was reading. I've been trying to think about it for you. I need to do some more Google searching and, and try and figure out what it was. But it's interesting to find that this isn't always the case, that people who start their kids off in a sport are the standouts. Roger Federer was the complete opposite. I remember in this book that I can't remember the name of, they uh, compared Roger Federer's lifestyle to Tiger Woods's lifestyle. At a young age, Roger Federer's family had him exposed to a whole heap of different sports, just let him develop coordination and fitness and joy and let him sort of follow his curiosity, which is something that I'm more inclined to do with my own boys. Whereas the flip side of that, Jakob Ingebrigtsen takes an approach more like Tiger Woods that, okay, from the age of 10, which is kind of the age group where Yurt, the, the father, the coach says, all right, I'll officially start training you at this age. Um, yeah, he's more in line with that single-minded focus. So, I mean, this was a, an interesting point. It was a standout feature, and oh, I'm sure it depends on the individual as to what particular route is best for them. But, I mean, I hear about that, and I mention it to you because it's interesting, not necessarily because I'm promoting it. But at the age of 10, he says, all right, I'm all in to become an Olympic runner. But more than that, the age that he starts and the age that he starts to progress his training, he starts running miles that are just unheard of, at least with the people that I used to run with, for a kid that age. I want to say he was 12 and doing 60 or 70 Ks a week. And we're going to touch on how that may have been more effective than what a lot of Westerners do. Um, in terms of intensity and why it might have worked. I mean, he definitely had some experiences with niggles and injury, um, but he managed to overcome that. So, yeah, that, that's um, that's one that I'm not sold on, but I'm, I'm really interested in. And I, I think probably part of it would have to do with the environment that you're raised in. If you've got older brothers who are doing what you aim to do, then what's the point of flirting with all these other sports? If you've got a 10-year-old, he's confident. Uh, but, I mean, how many of those stories end up in a completely different way with burnout, with frustration, with injury, and and just with exhaustion. I don't know. I don't actually have stats. But, um, yeah, that, that young age was was really interesting. Even before they started running, the, the father and coach, I'm saying that only because I'm not convinced I'm pronouncing his name right. <laughs> he had the guys on roller skis. Obviously, in Norway, that uh, the ski nature of life is, is far more prominent. So he had, yeah, just roller skis. So there's from what I can understand, seems to be a lot less impact on the joints, but you're still developing the aerobic capacity of your athletes. So I I think Jakob was about four, three or four when he was on those, and so were his older brothers. And it was a natural progression through that into uh, the world of running. So it seems as though they already had a really solid aerobic base, if 
by the time they got to 10. And I don't even know whether this was a strategic move by Gert or whether it was just something that he enjoyed doing with the kids. But it was it was something that each and every kid, um, yeah, they were doing. The third thing, and this is something I'm not going to speak at too much depth about because I'm currently just delving down a, a huge deep rabbit hole of, of research and um, articles about the subject, but it's adapting to or, or training within your relevant lactate training zones. So part of the reason, part of the speculation that so much of the Ingebrigtsen training went relatively smoothly in terms of injury i mean they definitely had their fair share of injury henrik especially had had like a number of surgeries and a number of frustrating moments when it came to injury but the lactate training zone was a big part of their priority they were very um specific with the amount of exertion which was expected and required for a specific session they mixed up high intensity interval training so like a higher threshold of, of lactate work with more a steady, longer, slower uh, level of lactate work. I'm not 100% sure of the numbers um, which surround the actual lactate training that, that goes with this, but it was really interesting to see that they had a, a very structured balance. So it wasn't just go out and, hey, train as hard as you can for these 8 by one k The goal was to, to maintain your blood lactate levels at a certain percentage so you're not overexerting, um, but you're not underexerting, so you had that really valid uh, measuring stick. Owen Everett, the Irish exercise physiologist, was was really good on this subject. He spoke about the benefits of having training zones around heart rate for this reason, because it, it forces you to get enough out of yourself, but it forces you also to hold yourself back that you're able to do this over long periods of time. I think in terms of strength and consistency that comes with this style of training, it's really hard to argue with. Um, I mean, at the risk of repeating myself again and again and again, running has a reputation of rewarding those who are most consistent. And you can see how this particular style of training is able to be maintained over a long period of time because you're not going into like deep down into the reserves of your energy each and every session, although they still do have some of these sessions. One of the things they're famous for as well is that I don't know what day it was, but they're once a week, they're double threshold sessions where in the morning they might do some higher intensive interval sessions at a, a particular blood lactate level. And then the afternoon they would go out and do a less intensive workout at a, a lower level of blood lactate, something that we hadn't heard a, a lot about. It's becoming more and more popular now. I've started to hear a, a lot of, especially European coaches talk about this style of training. It's something that I'm beginning to learn a little more about, but uh, they, uh, Gert seemed like he was a really early adapter of this which was really cool the fourth thing that we see throughout the um the the documentary is even though they're very black and white on what it is that they're trying to achieve with a particular session it's very clear what session is done at what time how fast what blood lactate they uh, are supposed to be hitting if something comes up in the session they're very quick to adapt and i like this there was one particular session i reckon in season two maybe late season one where Jakob was, it seems as though he's having some um, like growth pain, a little bit of heel pain through his through his heels, and he he gets halfway through a session, and I, I think they're in a different country, so he calls his dad and says, "Hey, this is what I'm dealing with." The dad says, "Okay, we'll do one more. If the pain's still there, we're going to put your your actual heavier running shoes on, and and, and we're just going to jog. We're not going to we're not going to push it." 
This is something that I think is really encouraging and should be really eye-opening to a lot of athletes. Even elite performers are being adaptable with the way that they're training. There's no benefit as much as mentally we, we like to tell ourselves there is. There's, there's no benefit in forcing yourself through a potential injury in order to get to the end of a session. If our goal is consistently, we have to consider our training programs written in pencil so that on moments like this, when things aren't going well, when we are struggling, when we are injured, when there is a niggle, we can rub out the session and adapt it. This was really cool to see these guys do, not just at um, a junior level. This was this was all the way through. I think that takes far more discipline, far more strength. It's something that I'm always happy when I speak to an athlete I coach and they've told me, oh, okay, I, I changed the session based on X. I'm, I'm often proud of them based on the fact that it takes more discipline to do that. It takes... Um, some form of awareness of where you're at physically to, to pull the pin. And it also shows that you're aware of what smooth running feels like in comparison to, to what less smooth running feels like or what injured or niggly running feels like. So it's not always a negative thing. I often say it takes more uh, it, it takes more discipline to be able to um, limit a session or limit yourself in a session than it does just to, to force through it. Um, so on the same realm or the same conversation of this, the black and white training structure is interesting. Like that dictator nature that Gert um, has around the kids' training is, it's obsessive and it would be frustrating. The guys do get frustrated with it and there's a lot of arguments, there's a lot of frustration towards him. In fact, recently, I think 12 months ago, all the boys came out and said at times their dad was physical against them, like he was violent, he was manipulative, he was aggressive making sure that this training got done. I kind of feel sorry for the dad. I don't know the ins and outs of what he's like, but he seems like a guy who, uh, when you get to know him, he's got a very soft nature and his insecurities are covered up with this dictatorship style of uh, running the family. But I say that because um, it, within this dictatorship approach to the training, he would he, he would have to the day what training phase they were going in. So he would have, uh, like say it was a 12-month plan, he would know that, okay, at month three, we're going to do high altitude training at St. Moritz. We'll be there for one month. We'll come back down. We'll limit. And I think having that clarity, having that oversight, having that outlook on what 12 months worth of work looks like makes training a lot easier. So if you're the kind of athlete who's just going out there and just running to how you feel each day, maybe that's good. Maybe you're not training for anything super competitive. But if you're trying to improve, I'd really encourage you to have a little bit of an overview of what it is you're training for. And then if you're confident enough to put together a plan of how to train to get towards that goal, do that. If not, reach out and, and get some coaching. Uh, going into the new year, I've got a couple of spaces remaining for any athletes who are interested in doing things like this. If you're interested in that, hit the coaching link in the description to this episode below. But just work with someone that you know or someone that you trust when it comes to their running knowledge to help you create a black and white structured plan. Now, as I said earlier, it's important we adapt and adjust based on injuries and stress and things that life throws our way. But without that, it's very hard to hit a target when you don't know where the target is. So I think it's really difficult to um, to, to overlook that. Um, the obsession was winning with winning was the, the last one. More than just an obsession with winning. It was a, a real winning culture within the family. All of the boys knew when they were lining up, they were lining up because they wanted to win a race. They weren't just there to take part. And the way that each of these athletes um, uh, implement this was really impressive. Now, not all of us are in a position 
where we can win every race that we're lining up against. But developing the mindset, developing a training structure to complement that life, uh, uh, that mindset, it's like an empowering circle. You, you believe in your talent, you implement the talent, you run better. You get more belief, it's like you get more talent. Do you know what I mean? Obviously, your talent doesn't grow, but your confidence in your talent does. So what does that mean? How does that apply to you? I would encourage you to, to really work on that, that competitive element of your mindset. Maybe there's someone that you're shoulder to shoulder with. Maybe you've hit a little bit of a plateau with your own performance. Figure out who your major competition is. And if you feel empowered by that particular uh, competition, use that as, as your competitive drive. Develop a little bit of a winning culture within your own mindset. As I said, Winning culture doesn't necessarily mean you're going to win every race. It simply means that you're going to win the little rivalries and challenges that you set for yourself. I mean, the beauty with a documentary like this is you can just go down, down, down for ages about uh, all the things that they're doing well, all the things that they're doing wrong. I just wanted to offer a little bit of food for thought. It's almost like a journal entry for me just to try and wrap my head around so many of the thoughts and lessons that I've taken out of it. Uh, if you've watched it, would love to hear a little bit more about what, what you actually benefited by from the documentary. Um, for today, that's pretty much all I wanted to say though. I wanted to share those things with you. I hope it was helpful. Uh, quick reminder, if you're looking for coaching in the new year, reach out via that link in the description. If you've got any questions, if there's any way that I can help you, feel free just to shoot me a message, guys. I listen to so many podcasts and rarely send messages to the host because I'm like, will they ever get it? Hey, if you send a message to me via the Relax Running website, I'm going to get it. I'm here to help. I would love to be able to help. I'd love to hear more about who's listening. Um, also, if you wouldn't mind, would love it if you would leave a little review, whether it's on Spotify or whether it is on uh, Apple Podcasts. It somehow seems to help the algorithm, helps the podcast reach uh, a, a lot more listeners. But for now, happy training, happy racing, and I'll see you guys again here next week. Thanks for listening to the Relaxed Running Podcast. If you're ready to become a faster, more efficient runner, visit www.relaxedrunning.com.